Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Our brains are paleolithic. Our brains haven't changed for 30 years. So it's like running a Commodore 64, but playing like the newest version of Fortnite. It just is like, no, I can't do this. If I'm honest with myself, there are definitely times where I feel that digital devices hinder my well-being versus helping it. I'm not an anxious person, and yet mindless scrolling or allowing those inbound messages or texts to take over definitely has an impact on my well-being. I'm sure you can relate. But let's face it, I didn't get my first phone or tablet until I was old. It's a very different world now, and navigating the digital landscape and impact of it for the young people in our lives is something more people and companies are focusing on. My guest today is Jocelyn Brewer, who is a Sydney-based psychologist with a special interest in the psychology of technology and staying human in a digitally saturated age. She created Digital Nutrition in 2013 as a positive framework for addressing digital well-being issues and our love-hate relationship with technology, and in 2021 completed a Master's in Cyber Psychology at Sydney University. Who even knew that you could get a Master's in Cyber Psychology? I didn't. Fabulous to see how this stuff is progressing. In addition to her private psychology practice where she works with adolescents and adults, Jocelyn is a speaker, educator and media commentator on issues relating to cyber psychology, digital well-being and mental health. We are about to get schooled on digital nutrition, people. Jocelyn, it is so lovely to sit down with you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Great topic ahead, I'm sure. So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? It would be our relationship to technology and specifically focusing on the positive ways of thinking about that, which I like to call digital nutrition. Digital nutrition. What a great word for it. Yeah. Yeah. And this this literally is an antidote or a hack back against the notion of digital detoxing. So about 10 years ago, I found that People were talking a lot about digital detox and the need to really pull back from our, you know, interaction with screens. And I was like, detox, that sounds really hectic, very aligned to diet culture. Let's really take control and the power back around our relationship with devices and let's call it digital nutrition and think about that food analogy with tech, not the analogy with drugs, which people love because it's so salacious, to start thinking about how we can nurture and nourish ourselves using the incredible technology that we do have in our palms, in our faces, the things like these kind of podcasts. Such a great topic and the way you term that around getting rid of the detox part because I actually do detoxing every year and a couple of times a year and people kind of freak out about it. So I agree with your sentiment there. Tell me how you got into this space and a bit about your background and what led you to want to work and, and be so passionate about this area, Jocelyn. 
Absolutely. So I was a high school teacher. I was teaching geography, commerce, business studies, things like that in an all boys selective school in Sydney. And I got into a retraining program. And as a part of that school counselor retraining program and doing my fourth year psych, I had to do a research project. And I was like, oh, what should I do? And the principal, who's a very clever man, said to me, you should check out what's going on with young men and technology and their use of games. Because at this particular school, they were really noticing that some of the brightest young men were really getting sucked into online games. So that's really how um, I kicked off with my fourth year master's thesis. And then I was a bit like a dog with a bone because it was so fascinating to me. And obviously I could see the impacts then across other devices, across different genders. And I was really passionate about gaming because I could see that there were lots of great things happening with games as well. So here I am 15 years later um, and I've done a master's of cyber psychology with a research group over at Sydney Uni. And I've spent, you know, gosh knows how many hours really delving into the notion of cyber psychology, which even when I started, didn't didn't really exist. We <laughs> we talked to young people about the jobs of the future that haven't been in invented, and here I am in my mid forties doing one of those jobs of the future that ten years ago I, I wouldn't have called myself a cyber psychology researcher. Yeah, and you use the term around thinking of technology like food more than like drugs. So, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I guess at this point in human history, we all need to use technology. It's very, very hard to live a life that is completely digitally abstinent. And I think it's really about then appraising the way that we use technology, the content that we consume, and what I call the virtual vitamins within our online digital diet, the online activities that we do, so that we can really kind of come to grips with the fact that there are ways to have a healthy use of and relationship to technology. So I think we've done a lot of work in the last 30 years over how to eat well and, and intuitive eating principles and all those sorts of things. So really buddying off that. And I find parents who are the majority of who I work with really respond to that because we get that we don't sit down to food time at dinner, right? We, we don't say, oh, you've got 20 minutes of food time and then, you know, I'm going to take your plate away. We actually say, what's on your plate? You've got to eat two more bits of broccoli before we're going to go and have the blueberries and yogurt or whatever else. So I think it's just a really easy access point. People get it when we start talking about what are, you, what are some of the digital allergens? What are some of the things that really kind of don't agree with your system? For me, it's stuff like TikTok. It just sets my brain on fire in a way that actually isn't really helpful. So I know I need to stay away from certain things. So... That's the basis of it. Yeah, I think using that notion around, as you say, like the language I hear, especially with my mates that have got young kids of screen time and limiting screen time. So how do you recommend then that they word that? To your point then about having, you know, sitting down and eating your meal and how do you reframe it? One, so that the kids understand and that it's, you know, seen as a positive kind of element rather than a restrictive component. What, what do you recommend for, you know, help parents navigate this? Because it's a really challenging area. Absolutely. And because there's so much content out there, it can be really easy to focus on the metric of time. We only have 24 hours in the day. No one's hacked that space-time continuum to give us any more time. So while that's an easy metric, really it's about looking at the quality of the content, who made the content, how long that content goes for, the energy levels within that. And sometimes that's referred to as the kind of dopamine sort of responses and the, the lights and the sensory overload of that content. So what I literally suggest is being able to sort the digital candy from the digital kale. 
and talking like we would with food about sometimes foods or healthy foods and what are the ultra processed online kind of foods versus some of the more educational and pro-social content out there. So I have a six-year-old and we literally sit down together and say, well, what do we think about this content? Is this content something that is we just have a little bit of and that you need me actually here with to kind of help you make sense of, especially with some of the you know, online content where it hasn't been vetted. It doesn't have a rating like the stuff that would be on ABC Kids or even on some of the Netflix and streaming services. So we really talk about just like we would with, I think eating four oranges in a row is too many oranges, right? So it's like, okay, let's limit ourselves to three of those episodes in a row and then let's go and do something else. Yeah, good, good way to word it. And how do you navigate then kids older that take their phones to their bedrooms and things? I know this is sort of a, an area that a lot of people try and navigate to ensure that their kids aren't watching TikTok, for example, until the wee hours of the morning and not getting enough sleep for, you know, their developmental sort of phases and stuff as well. Yeah, look, sleep and protecting sleep is the number one thing that I do because until we get that right, until we support sleep, it's really hard to work with a sleep-deprived brain and as parents we all know what that is like. Look, there's there's a lot of sort of hard and fast rules around this stuff. And for me, like I'm a, a really bad example to some people because I do use my phone with my daughter in her bedroom because we listen to smiling mind activities and certain kind of like relaxation stuff to help get her to sleep. That's really different, obviously, to a teenager taking their phone with no limits, access to the entire internet into their bedroom where not only is it impacting sleep, but they can also be bullied, come across really awful content in a space that should be safe, that should be actually a sanctuary. Again, I would go back to really thinking about what's the quality of what we're doing with our phones. It's not the phone that anyone's addicted to or is really you know, dependent on. It's actually the people that we connect with through that. So you can use your phone in a digitally nutritious way in your bedroom if it's, for instance, not connected to the internet and you just have some of those relaxation tracks downloaded. A lot of this too has to do with the trust that we have in our relationships with young people. And I'm regularly sort of suggesting to parents that the best parental control you can download is trust and communication because there's no app that I've seen that is watertight that kids who really want to get into those online communities where their psychological needs are being met is watertight. So trust and communication trumps it all because when you're talking about what is it that has you then go and hack the firewall or the parental control, what are your needs? And we can address those needs that's where we can kind of really revolutionise some of the behaviours with technology. So many beautiful tips there and some really good things for people to think about. One of the elements, I guess, as well is around our being role models. How do you know we best role model for our kids and, and for those around us? And I guess our partners, it doesn't have to be, you know, you may be with someone, they're obsessed with their phones, which happens a lot. We try and have it so that your phones aren't at the dinner table you know, when you're having a conversation, whether you, you are out to lunch or with other people, that at least I turn the phone over if it has to be there and I'm expecting something. But most of the time it's like a keep it away from me. But a lot of other people don't have those kind of practices. They are tethered to it. So how, how do you navigate that? What's your sort of recommendations in that space? 
is, is to name it to tame it. And I think sometimes they're all very polite about some of these things. And there is a diverse way that we interact with our phones and, and the urgency with which we place on certain interactions. You know, oh, I got a text, I have to reply straight away, even though there's no actual rule book that says that. I mean, there's a word for it, right? It's called fubbing, phone snubbing. And, and our use of technology is contagious. One person gets their phone out is like permission then, oh, I'll just have that cheeky check as well. You know, we, we come up with a lot of excuses about how important, you know, the email is or whatever. Again, I go back to communication and sometimes that communication is uncomfortable and we have to have some boundaries or be curious even to say, hey, I'm just wondering... How do you go with always being on your phone? Do you notice the impacts of that? Are there some ways that you could set up some boundaries or think differently about that relationship? Part of it too, I think, is we're just in so many places on the internet. We've left our footprint everywhere. We're keeping up with so many channels of like messages and likes and invitations and like how do we sort the really important communication from the casual check-ins and meme sharing and, and all of that. So I've got a presentation that I do called literally too much irrelevant information and what the digital overconsumption is doing to our mental health. And I think a lot of the brain fog and anxiety that we have is coming from just that mind explosion of trying to process We're overloaded. Overload, yeah, <laughs> I right. Feel it every day. Our, our brains are paleolithic. Our brains haven't changed for 30 years. So it's like running a Commodore 64, but playing like the newest version of Fortnite. It just is like, no, nah, I can't do this. That's a great analogy. I, you posted something on your socials where you had a trampoline and you said the trampoline doesn't have any padding on it. There's a slide at the top and you've, you know, your kids have set it up and you're going down the slide onto the trampoline. And I think your caption is, no bones were broken. It kept us occupied for hours and hours. And it just made me think about, it was such a beautiful image. I mean, one, because I could totally relate, thinking about, you know, my brother and I flying around the hills hoist, you know, always climbing these crazy, huge willow trees that were like twice the size of our house. And our parents let us play and do, and that's how we explored and we got to find things and push our boundaries. You know, with so much helicopter parenting these days and people are so scared of that type of stuff and yet they let their kids look at anything and everything on the, online. And it was so profound for me. So love to sort of hear you talk about that a bit more because it's, you know, it's a really interesting phenomenon, I think, that goes on about how protective we are around playgrounds and different things. And yet in this space, we kind of almost abdicate our responsibility a little bit. Yeah. And, and this is, I think, Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist, has a new book out. He wrote The Coddling of the American Mind and a whole bunch of other stuff. Incredible person. He's actually got a new book, which literally says, we have focused way too much on keeping kids physically safe while letting them into these digital playgrounds that are really psychologically dangerous, as well as sometimes having real life physical dangers. And we haven't been on top of those things as parents. You know, having grown up in the 80s with that trampoline where, you know, that girl doing almost the jump midair, those people are in their 40s with their own children now. And I just, we have that nostalgia for, oh, we wish we grew up without smartphones, but here have one at the first opportunity so I can kind of get some peace and time to myself. We have this nostalgia for what it used to be, but we, then we have an upskill to understand their world and understand why that is actually a preference. Why do you like Fortnite over talking to your grandmother? Why can't you just go and jump and climb and play? Well, we actually don't let kids do that. 
we have very different senses of being careful and checking in. And a lot of why kids even get their first phone or their first smart watch is because I need to be able to contact you in an emergency and know where you are. Now, my sense of an emergency is I'm in an ambulance and I cannot actually use my phone or my smartwatch anyway. Whereas I think a lot of other parents have the sense of the emergency is, oh, you might forget to go to your music lesson after school. I better send you that text reminder. So we're creating some of this kind of sometimes enmeshment, sometimes interdependence, you know, and it's often our anxiety as parents that then plays into needing to be able to track and know where our kids are that we've never had before, right? Like I was either at home or at the swimming pool or at Natalie Gardner's backyard across the road. So some of this surveillance stuff and being able to know where your kid is generates a lot of anxiety for us. You know, some of the work that I do with parents is really just to sit with what our greatest fears are, knowing that Australia is an incredibly safe society. It's much safer than, again, when we were growing up. I had a mental map of every single safety house that there was because we had basically the shit scared out of us that we were going to get kidnapped and we would need to run to a safety house and knock on the door and some lovely old lady would save us, even though reality check, there was no working with children done. There was no like police checks of people who had that little yellow thing on their house. Our sense of danger and our sense of threat, I think has really, really changed. And, and often they are not real threats. Kids do not get kidnapped by random strangers. Yes, that sometimes happens, but under very specific contexts usually. A couple of things you touched on there. I'm interested in your view of exposing your very young children to tablets in the form of, you know, a digital babysitter because I see it all the time. And again, there's no judgment for me. I, you know, I'm a stepmom. My kids are older when they came into my life and I didn't have to navigate that. And also we're very outdoors people. So it just wasn't even an option. We were always out doing stuff. So they didn't really get the choice, but I see it often. And also I know my mates have that real internal kind of grief within themselves because they're like, I know I feel like a bad parent, but I just can't cope anymore. And at home, I'm like, I've got to, you know, let them have the TV or let them, you know, play with their iPad or, you know, in the cafe where I just need five minutes of free space. So how do they navigate that? Like, and what are your kind of recommendations, especially if they, it's one thing if you're starting and you go, okay, don't give your two-year-old or your three-year-old an iPad. But if they're kind of in that, you know, now that routine and they're used to it, how do you break that? Great questions. And usually it's about a tailored approach because no two families are the same. No two parents are having exactly the same struggles. Generally, yes, prevention is better than a cure, but as a parent, you have the ability to shape behaviour and change, I guess, the routine and the rhythm of your family. What I get concerned about, like you, you know, when you see families really sitting there on their devices in cafes, that's something, again, very different to how we grew up. You maybe went to the local Chinese restaurant twice a year for a really special occasion, <laughs> We didn't have cafe culture and little people are not designed to sit still in general, but sit still in a cafe, right? That's not their natural environment. What I suggest is really pairing things back, but you have to supplement in. You can't take away with one hand and then not give them anything to do. So I go everywhere still with my six-year-old and have for, you know, probably the last four years with the colouring in books, the collection of textures and all the rest of it sometimes a soccer ball. So I really like my local sports club because they've turned some of the old bowling greens into space for kids to run around. 
and I give her things to do. So I can have that downtime while actively supervising. And it's only kind of top shelf reward, top shelf thing is like when I'm really stuck or it's raining or whatever's going on that I can say, okay, now I can have some episodes of Bluey. But it's not the first thing I go to. Kids sitting in prams, transiting around places, having, you know, phones in front of them. Again, people aren't doing that because they think, how can I ruin my child's brain development? They think that having a very expensive device and being able to give your child that interactivity is useful. It's unfortunately not. Even from a perspective of our gaze, we're gazing at something quite narrow and that narrowing is usually around danger rather than bringing out and up our line of vision to be able to survey what's in our environment and to then interact with kids. Like, can you see that big sign? Can you find three things that are red? Can you do all of these things? Which, you know, aren't necessarily language development like the call and return sort of thing that you might do with a a babbling baby, but is still helping your child sort of be integrated into their environment. We're just doing our best, right? And and we don't want to have, feel guilty or then wake up when they're like 10 and go, oh, wow, the things I didn't know. So again, preventatively and proactively saying, hey, this is how your kid's brain works. And this is why they don't need shit tons of bright colours smashing into their eyeballs while you walk around in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And what is it doing to their brains? We don't know. Because it's really hard. So one of the big problems with this area is the way that we research screen time and literally asking a parent, how much time did your kid spend on all of these different devices is not a very good way to measure things. Because what my daughter does on the TV versus the tablet when she gets it versus my phone in the evenings when she's getting to sleep, completely different. And so we need to get better at asking good questions about the quality of the content and the context that's happening in. So that family in the cafe all on their phones, that's not so bad if we zoom out and we go, oh, you've just been on a four-hour bike ride and you're all exhausted, right? Or you're looking at the GoPro image of you doing, you know, mountain biking or stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think it's really just taking that step back, being a little bit more holistic with how we appraise things and not freaking out, but also knowing that we can't know exactly what's happening to a kid's brain unless we put them in an MRI machine, which is really hard to get approval to do and are very expensive and things like that. One thing we know though, is part of that process of sharenting. So getting your phone in front of you, go, oh, do that again. That's really cute. You know, you're interrupting the call and response nature of language acquisition. So if you're, oh, just got to quickly get on my phone and do a thing, but we're in the middle of an interaction, again, that fubbing kind of thing can be interrupting some of the language acquisition. Again, depends how often, depends how well you're interacting to begin with. There's all of these other contextual factors that mean it's really hard to research. But again, we want to prevent issues rather than just hope for the best. I think I've learned about six new terms from you. I've never heard of sharenting and less of fubbing and all these terms. Technoference is another one, right? The interference of technology in our interactions. So technoference, not mine, right? I didn't make those up. Digital nutrition, only one that I can claim. Screen ages, that's 1997. Screen ages was, was a term. Classic. Oh, I love them. I'm going to be uh, looking at Urban Dictionary after this. So, Jocelyn, people can work with you through finding you on your organisation, Digital Nutrition. So, you go into schools and you work with parents one-to-one. How can people work with you if they're listening to this and going, yes, I need some help? 
variety of ways. So I do do parent webinars. I don't work directly with young people in big assembly style things anymore because I really just can't measure impact. I love working with young people and I have courses for young people and usually parents side by side because these are conversations we need to have together, not you know about young people without young people. They've got to have a voice and a, a place at the table, I really believe. You get much better breakthroughs around managing technology when they're asked. I do do one-on-one therapy still. So, you know, if you want to come and have like a, a one-on-one coaching, I have packages around that. I have my screens and early childhood courses. Everything's basically on my website. So there's something for everyone, I guess, because I really want to have lots of opportunities for people to plug into this work at the level that they need. My target market is literally every human who uses a digital device. Well, yeah, which is everyone, all of us. <laughs> yeah, you need support then. I got something for you. Beautiful. Well, I want to finish with one tip from you that in all of us adults, so we've been talking a lot about kids and stuff and how we can help our kids be more nutritious about digital, <laughs> their digital wear. What's one tip you'd say leaving everyone today going, if you did this, it would make a change in being more nutritious in your digital usage? Yeah, look, I think this is a really simple one and it's just go to sleep, go to bed, turn it off, give your brain which is this ancient operating system, some downtime and that reprieve from all the lights, all the buzzes, all the lols, those digital snacks, which are constantly, I talk about like a sushi train that's going round and round and round. You're like, what if something good's coming? And just turn it off. I know that sounds super simplistic, but it's a start that then gives your operating system a bit more space to then start making the bigger changes that then, you know, really domino into better digital wellbeing. Oh, I love it. Really enjoyed talking to you today. And uh, thank you so much for uh, all your great tips there and giving us lots of food for digital thought. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com. <laughs>